Welcome to Season 4 of American Political History, 1676, Civil War. Barclay had signaled civil war by looting arms from Fort York, while politically abandoning the colonial seat of government in Jamestown. This allowed Bacon to seize the political momentum and call for a full-fledged revolution in Virginia. Bacon would summon a convention in Middle Plantation of a new colonial assembly, and there they would form a new government for an independent Virginia. They all agreed that Barclay had first declared war on his people, with his actions of vacating his governmental post. This had forced them to have this convention to form a new government. Their audience for these claims was the future crown authorities that would be reviewing this. Everyone at the convention was required to take an oath of allegiance to General Nathaniel Bacon. And because they had all just sworn an oath to someone that was not empowered by the king and crown, they had all called the crown's appointed governor a traitor to the people. It was an easy step to agree, from there, that they must resist the crown itself until satisfactory terms could be negotiated. After the convention, these military officers and burgesses of the Revolutionary Convention would return to their counties and demand that all county officials and gentlemen take the oath of allegiance too. Those that refused the oath would often refuse, saying, Just like Cromwell, this revolution will fail eventually, and ruin would befall those that showed support to Bacon. Regardless of the legitimacy of their protests, their action of refusal quickly became an open invitation to seize their properties. If someone was unwilling to take the oath with them, they could not be trusted in the revolution or society itself. This became a mob of judicial power, allowing powerful Baconites to use the supposed failure to take the oath as a universal excuse to settle old scores. With the conclusion of the Revolutionary Convention, General Bacon would occupy Green Springs as the seat of his new authority. This had been one of Barclay's plantations, which was said to be the greatest in all Virginia. In the next few weeks, through a process of the majority's passions and intimidation of the minority, the greater part of Virginia mainland joined this new revolutionary government. But before any of the dreams of a revolution could be established, there was a war that had to be won. Barclay may have retreated, but he had not surrendered, and the new government's claims would mean very little unless they disposed of Barclay himself. Barclay had escaped to the eastern shores of the Virginia colony. This part of the colony was focused around trade with London and other countries' merchants, and was not fertile ground for Bacon's revolution. So Bacon appointed Giles Brand and one of his generals named Carver to lead an expedition of 300 men with a small flotilla of boats to capture Barclay. Bland and Carver started by going around seizing tobacco boats owned by Loyalists. They acquired very little plunder, though, because most ships just decided to sail back to England at the first signs of trouble. After a little hunting... Bland and Carver located Barclay within the eastern shores. Barclay had brought himself loyalty there by promising 25 years of tax exemptions for the eastern shore residents that fought with him. Barclay invited Carver to parley with him. Barclay had appointed Carver as a sheriff many years back, so he felt he had a reasonable chance to turn Carver to his side of the war. While Barclay was talking with Carver on an estate, 
one of Barclay's captains noticed that Carver's ship was anchored offshore and lightly protected. He sent a message to Barclay to keep Carver and his honor guard busy on the plantation through the night, as late as possible. This was an opportunity to capture the Baconites' best ship. This ship was so monumentally important to the war that Ludwell, one of Barclay's closest men and himself a Burgess of Virginia, decided to lead the attack himself. In the pre-dawn hours, they attempted to sneak into the ship and overpower the guards that remained. Carver got message of an attack on his ship, and as he and his men rowed their small boats back to the main ship, they noticed that it was under Loyalist control only once they were within the cannon shot of that vessel. Only being in rowboats, Carver had no choice but to surrender to the Loyalists. He would later say that Bland, who had been responsible for the ship in his absence, was a careless coward who had lost the whole revolution in one night. That ship was called the Rebecca. It was the most powerful ship in the region, with 20 mounted guns and enough room to ferry its own troops. This capture flipped the war on its head. Now, instead of Bacon having Barclay pinned into a small portion of Virginia, where Bacon's forces could easily sail to and assault, Barclay now controlled the waterways. He promised men willing to join him now easy victory and shares of the traitorous men's plantations. Men rallied to the Loyalist forces, perceiving them now as the front-runner of this war. Loyalist forces landed and retook Jamestown, an unimportant town militarily, but a huge political victory for Barclay. Baker would now have to return with more of his forces, which were currently engaged in fighting the Pamunkey, a nation central to Barclay's web of alliance and one of the last surviving nations of the Powhatan Confederacy. Bacon would move to retake Jamestown. If his revolutionary government was to hold legitimacy over Virginia, he must show their ability to be strong enough to hold the colony's official capital. When Bacon's forces attacked, they had to avoid being close enough to the water now, because the ship's cannons would easily be able to bombard them into submission. This forced their tactics to be narrow land assaults that got repeatedly repelled. Bacon's forces were unable to siege Jamestown properly, because the Loyalists controlled the waterways, which could easily resupply them at will. In desperation and contempt, the Baconite forces kidnapped a bunch of wives of the Loyalists, many of which would have likely been the wives and sisters of the Loyalist militiamen, not the officers, who would have had the wealth to be able to afford to ship their families away to safety at the start of the conflict. Bacon used this line of women as a human shield from cannon fire, while his men dug trenches. These trenches would provide cover for their cannons and allow them to fire upon Jamestown and the ships that supported her. The next day, the Baconite forces paraded a line of captured natives. This was a political spectacle, showing that Barclay was so afraid to kill an Indian that he would not even do so to prevent his men from being fired upon in a war. In Jamestown proper, the Loyalist men were dry and relatively safe even from these new trenches with Baconite cannons, but their morale of these militiamen were not based on political passions like the revolutionaries. It was based on quick opportunities for plunder. Barclay had motivated most of his militiamen on pay and financial rewards through plunder. Being the defender in a siege gives very little opportunity for financial rewards. Barclay's militia's morale fell apart. The next night, in the cover of darkness, Barclay's commanders chose to retreat from Jamestown once again, sailing downriver. This time, 
the Revolutionary Army had no mercy. Since defending Jamestown was strategically unsound for them, they torched it instead. After all, their new capital was in Green Springs anyways. Jamestown was not a normal town or settlement, so to speak. It consisted of an assembly hall and a few inns and shops that serviced men while the assembly was in its quarterly sessions. It was filled with large manors, which had been given out as patronage by Barclay. Barclay himself owned five houses in Jamestown. So burning Jamestown fit right into the symbology of burning down the Berkeleyan regime. Drummond, Bacon's second in the Revolution, made sure to save all civil records. These land records were the only proof that someone owned the land by legal right in Virginia, which gave the holder of the records substantial political power over the landed gentry of Virginia. You say you own that property, huh? You've lived there for 50 years? We see no record of that. Bacon now moved to spread the revolution to the neighboring colonies. In Carolina, which consisted of only two official counties at this point, and was populated with mostly ex-Virginians, he had fertile grounds for his cause. Bacon said that the governors of Carolina have taken no notice of their people nor the people of them for a long time. Representatives from Carolina were sent to Green Springs to counsel Bacon. In Maryland, there was discontent, sure, but Maryland was its own political society with very different grievances of their leaders. One of the disputes at the time was that the upper house in Maryland had tried General Truman for his crimes against Indians, which was then passed to the lower house. More connected to the passions of the people, they decided to give Truman the lightest sentence possible for openly killing natives under the custom of parley. Other parts of native relations were awful in Maryland. Lord Baltimore was blamed for the Seneca raids in the north and the west. Maryland had declined to coordinate with New York, which had signed a non-aggression treaty with the Iroquois League, which included the Seneca. Maryland also faced the deep seeds of paranoia over the Roman Catholic Lord Baltimore and his supposed popish plots, which he, of course, was a part of. When addressing Marylanders, Bacon did have some of the same sort of lanes of disconnect that were in Virginia. The common people felt that the elite enriched themselves over the priorities of the public defense. They bristled at a policy of making the common militiamen pay for the officers' supplies, as well as the discontent of often being forced into militia service. They also complained about the assembly's ability to tax heavily at will. The American colonies at this time were still underdeveloped even for the standards of that day. The common people were especially vulnerable to disease, war, famine, and all the political corruption that just exacerbated all of these vulnerabilities. The poor country is robbed, cheated by the superiors and inferiors, everyone serving their own turn, without any true fear or worship of God which denotes that the country is but in a feeble minority. But unfortunately, from the point of view of Bacon's revolution, Maryland's discontent was fractured and without a political leader. Some wanted and did join Bacon, but this was so small relative to Virginia's revolt that it was easily suppressed within and by Maryland authorities. The main body of Marylanders that were discontented, unlike in Virginia, were proposing a restoration of government by the crown. They were calling for the English imperial rulership over them, which was much better than the alternative of this fiefdom of manorial rulers. 
Maryland had petitioned the king and crown for direct rulership over them from the crown using these points of argument. That the sovereign lord and imperial magistrate appoint a Protestant viceroy or governor general. This was the popish plot fear at work, a fear that was always ticking in the minds of Maryland and their politics. This popish potential political conspiracy dominated all their thinking. It must be that the Catholic Baltimore would, of course, join with Catholic French in Iroquois League in treaty, secret or public. And this would all be done to the loss of the English Protestant in the religious battles over souls that had ravaged Europe and now the New World. Second, they asked the king to establish as the law of Maryland English common law and oversight over this law by royal and parliamentary statute. That they as Englishmen be allowed to appeal the crown's courts. Remember, as we discussed, Maryland was a palantate. Baltimore was answerable to no one except the King of England. No English courts could be appealed to from Maryland over Lord Baltimore. Third, they asked for local legislators chosen freely by the people so that these legislatures could act for the common general good of the people, so that they as righteous Protestant Englishmen could have proper Protestant ministers and proper non-Catholic schools. Fourth, they asked that all proprietary tax revenues collected by the government be accounted for by the crown authorities to ensure that it is actually spent on the purpose for which they are taxed for. Maryland may have too been consumed with revolutionary ideas in 1676, but it was not politically allied with Bacon's revolution of independence. Maryland would not be susceptible to the spread of Bacon's revolution because Maryland was demanding imperial rulership, not independence and negotiated suit from the English crown. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.